Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, in particular, the ongoing plandemonium. It's a good word. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Locals, Substack, and Rumble to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer-slash-editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where I'm currently snowed in, and I will be your host for today. And I am joined, as always, by my co-host and the author and founder of Rounding the Earth, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam. How you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, uh, been, um, <laughs> you know, what, uh, about to share private info. I, I, I'm not going to go there. Um, but uh, <laughs> it, it's been an interesting work week already so far. Um, lots of very interesting conversations. And uh, I have the feeling we're going to have another one today. I completely agree. Well, I'm very excited to use this opportunity to introduce someone we uh, have spoken to before on the show. Please welcome back, Kristen. How are you, Kristen? I'm good, Liam. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me back. Hey, Kristen. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to have you back today. You're a, a wealth of information. Um, you've recently come out of complete anonymity, and you're now starting to uh, to put a face to this wisdom and this intelligence you've brought together. So do you want to just very quickly reintroduce yourself to some of the audience members who may not have caught your last uh, episode here? Sure. So um, I am a community organizer. I'm a teacher and I'm a researcher and a writer, and I have been kind of working behind the scenes with a network of people across the country and a bit beyond, uh, in my own words, kind of trying to keep the freedom movement or the medical freedom movement safe from uh, nefarious attempts to undermine it in a variety of different ways. Um, yeah, and I have a, a substack that I just created and launched called Beyond the Maze, where I'm streamlining previous work I've done and currently unfolding work. That's fantastic. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to pull that up so people can go see it. I'm having a bit of a screen freeze issue. But how has the uh, how has the Substack been so far? I, I know I read your wonderful uh, summary of White Noise, this movie that came out uh, right after the Ohio train incident. Um, how has the uh, reaction been? How's the uh, the uptake of the Substack been since launch? It's been good, yeah. And I've gotten some help with that from people, so I'm grateful. And I, it's really exciting for me to have an additional network of people, even if I don't know them, 
to engage with. And that's been, that's been rich just in comments and people reaching out to me privately to have a variety of conversations. So, yeah, I have to say, you know, once you have a home, um, for your work, it is really nice the way people come forward and offer additional pieces of information because so many topics are hard to research completely. I mean, well, it's almost impossible to research any complex topic completely, but, um, we, you know, we, we really appreciate our audience, uh, at, at rounding the earth. And I'm sure you're already experienced. Sounds like you're already experiencing that people begin to reach out to you with, um, with pieces of information that plug the holes in the, in the larger story. Right. And, and I think this is important because it helps people, um, you know, get a sense of the level of truth of a story, right? When you bring, when you have six facts and people bring you three more, uh, then suddenly, um, you know, the picture is a little bit more complete. So it's nice to start building a community. Absolutely. It's also nice to find out that other people are paying attention to um, a lot of these stories. Uh, as I've written uh, Chaos Agents, and uh, I've published, oh gosh, I haven't published nearly what I would like to on, on, those, on those topics, you know, a very small fraction of it. Um, the number of people who have reached out to me and said, you know, thank you for doing this. And, and, here, and sometimes here's some additional information also. Um, <clears throat> it's been very interesting because the people who speak, who say that privately is much larger. The, you know, the people who speak privately are almost all interested uh, and, and understanding of the importance of the story. The people who speak publicly, I found, interestingly, are more are more mixed, right? So that tells us that the signal in public is not the same as the signal in private. And I think that that demonstrates the importance of the kind of work that you do as well. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I, I want to get your thoughts, Kristen, before we dive into our main topics for today, which um, I, I have some uh, notes that you sent us. Before we get into that, I, I wanted to, first of all, again, compliment you on this piece you did, A Sense of Deja Vu. Um, I don't know if I'm going to watch White Noise. Uh, in, in, in the piece, you do say you don't recommend watching it, unless, <laughs> of course you know, for the sake of verifying your work, you mentioned that would be possibly a, a very legitimate reason to watch it. But apart from that, maybe don't. Because it seems to me, it's kind of a mind bender uh, that was already a mind bender in the context of the movie alone, but then you apply it to the context of now this has actually happened. And then there's like mind bender within mind bender within mind bender. Um, I start to, I, I keep saying I, I need to uh, constantly kind of re-grip myself into reality. And I almost don't, I don't want to watch it because I don't need anything blowing me away from my grip on reality. But how has, what's your current 30,000 foot view on, uh, on, on the East Palestine situation, um, either related to the movie or not? What, what's going on here? What's, what's your take? It would almost make more sense to actually return to that question later in the conversation, if that's okay. That's what we call a hook. I love it. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fair enough. Okay. So how do we want to get started today? What is the main reason we're here? Well, I proposed giving an overview of uh, this term that's become popularized more recently called cognitive warfare um, because 
it's an important thing to uh, understand the accurate definition of. It's being talked about a lot, gets dropped a lot in actual propaganda itself. And there's confusion between like what a psyop is and what cognitive warfare is, um, where it's taking place, if it's taking place, who's the target, you know, it's very gray and very nebulous. And so, and I discovered a couple um, particularly interesting elements of the definition within the definition that are illuminating uh, with regards to current issues, uh, including current issues that are being discussed here in this community. So <clears throat> I could just kind of launch in. I have it set up in such a way that I could describe what the, what the publicly available um, timeline of the definition is and then how that's being developed. And then we could maybe reflect on uh, certain situations like the East Palestine or Project Veritas through the lens of this context. That's my proposal. All right. So tell us, what is cognitive warfare? Well, so what I was able to find dates back basically to 2020. There's some, you know, scholarly papers on uh, brain sciences and neurosciences um, in applied in war that predate that. And of course, we have uh, psychological warfare and we have information warfare. And these things have existed for a very long time in, in one way or another. But what's publicly available with regards to cognitive warfare, which is its own uh, warfare separate from these others really dates back to 2020 and it comes out of the uh nato innovation hub which is supposed to not be actually part of nato but it's an agency that's funded by one of uh two of nato's strategic command centers so it's very much a part of nato and um the first paper that was written, that was published by the Innovation Hub, uh, was written back in 2020. It's called NATO Sixth Domain of Operations. And it was written by a man named August Cole, who's a member of the Atlantic Council. Um, he, is, he is an ex-journalist who had a focus on national security and uh, considers himself a futurist. And he's written a lot of different books. They're really pr pretty crazy. It's like sci-fi futurist meets war. Um, so one is called like Ghost Fleet, a novel about next generation war. Um, another one's about like robotic war in the future, this kind of stuff. And he co-wrote this paper with a French biologist, uh, an evolutionary biologist who runs um, a center in France. And they really kind of outlined some, some imagination of cognitive warfare. And then um, in January 2022, a pretty famous 
researcher named Francois de Clouzel, who works closely with NATO, published his own strategy paper called Cognitive Warfare. At the same time that these guys were kind of imagining and articulating uh, cognitive warfare, the Innovation Hub from NATO also enlisted a group of students from the Whiting School of Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. So this uh, program um, enlisted students from Johns Hopkins and also the uh, London Imperial College. And they collaboratively were asked to articulate and define cognitive warfare on behalf of NATO and also kind of like in the, in the context of it exists, it's uh, the new you know, warfare landscape. China and Russia are already, you know, have advanced it to a certain extent. So what are the risks and uh, how do we identify it? And they produced a paper that was written in the NATO review called Cognitive Warfare Awareness and Resilience. And they also went on to, um, to create, or they're in the process of creating a cognitive warfare dashboard based on the infamous Johns Hopkins COVID-19 dashboard. <laughs> I'm right. sure we, <laughs> the same team, it's actually literally the same team that created the COVID-19 dashboard is now creating this cognitive warfare dashboard. The epidemiology of cognitive warfare, exactly. the rate of reproduction of cognitive warfare, the variance of cognitive warfare. Yeah, what, what would be the blots on the screen? Right. So so it's uh, it gets pretty confusing, but basically they're looking for um, patterns and they call them signatures of uh cognitive warfare campaigns that are being launched on the u.s population so we can get into more of what that might mean and and look like it's uh <clears throat> it's pretty interesting so one thing is the distinction between information warfare and and cognitive and i might as well just go as far as to also add psychological warfare and cyber warfare. So with information warfare, you're basically just injecting false information into the collective information space uh, for the purposes of messing with people. Um, with cyber warfare, you're attacking the structure, right? Actually like hacking or trying to shut down the internet. Um, it's a little bit more than that, but for now, let's just say it's attacking the structure. And with psychological warfare, you're manipulating people emotionally. With cognitive warfare, they're basically um, through the application of neurosciences, the brain sciences, social sciences, nanotechnology, AI, all these other things, um, attacking the way that people think itself, where information warfare might 
inject into your cognitive process false information. Cognitive warfare is designed to actually attack your cognitive process altogether. So it gets into definitions of, of aspects of thinking that I don't actually uh, think are, are accurate myself, but um, intuitive or instinctual or impulsive um, heuristic processes versus rational reasoning, these kinds of things. And, and the aim is to like actually confuse those different uh, elements of one's thinking process to create certain outcomes. And one of yeah. the main focuses is, is, is around trust. Yeah, if I could jump in, Kristen, um, I'll give a couple of examples for the audience that may help uh, crystallize what cognitive warfare is about. You know, so as you've said, cognitive warfare already involves information warfare. Information warfare is a much older concept that was um, that was growing in the intelligence communities very rapidly in the 1990s. And I'm sure just, you know, growth like a freight train, um, you know, in the last 30 years. <clears throat> Cognitive warfare involves our processes, how it is that we decide. Like, you know, we see information, but at some point we decide what the truth is. Right. Or we decide how we're going to behave with respect to the information that we've seen. Um, one thing that I've heard is you get told something seven times and then it sticks as fact, right? And so when you see messaging that is repeated, 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 once it has been repeated enough times, it's actually very hard to dislodge regardless of the truth of the information because now what you have to do is sort of like untrain a habit. It's sort of like that. So that would be one example of cognitive warfare. Uh, a second example of cognitive warfare is um, like this, uh, the Libet experiment. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but um, the Libet experiment where um, you had people, you know, sort of uh, trying to time this clock to make it stop right up at the very top, right? You had to like press a button and go bink, and then it stops, right? And uh, <clears throat> when measuring people's, you know, readiness potential, Right. When when uh, you, you know, strap people uh, into, um, you know, whatever, like sensors that will measure your heart rate, things like that. Right. You can see that people are preparing to time the button. And understanding this, knowing that people are prepared to time the button, um, you can disrupt the process. Right. So if people are receiving information, like let's go back to post 9-11 era. We had all these terror warnings, right? Red alert terror warnings uh, in the wake of 9-11. And um, I can't remember who it was, but there was a journalist who made note of the fact that these terror, these red alert warnings came right after administration scandals. Scandal, two days later, red alert. Scandal, four days later, red alert. That would be an example of cutting off somebody's sort of cognitive action potential um, you know, when it is that they might actually do something like call their congressman or, you know, or, or organize conversation about, you know, things that were going on that were, um, you know, dirty or nefarious within, um, within the government or, you know, you know, have the discussions that might stick then if you interrupt the discussions that would stick that people would hear the seventh time and then remember as fact, 
then you have actually cut off people absorbing facts. So th those are two examples of the way that cognitive warfare works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the the idea is to actually basically train people to not think in my opinion and make them very predictable as far as what might compel them to then act. And that's the ultimate goal is to create the conditions in the mind where you can really move people easily in one direction or another. And so there's a focus on decision-making factors and also trust, trust in whom and exploring and analyzing beliefs, belief systems as a means to figure out, you know, who to trust. So in 2021, um, the Innovation Hub hosted alongside NATO, like top tier NATO people, the first uh, science symposium on cognitive warfare in France. And they had, uh, there were papers produced also out of that. Um, oh, there you go. Nice, Liam. Don't, don't ask me how I have a copy of this. <laughs> because Canada's very involved in this. That's probably why. And then Back, so the Innovation Hub's been around since 2012, and in 2017, they uh, launched their Innovation uh, Biannual Challenge, where a different alliance member would host twice yearly, once in the fall, once in the spring, um, a problem-solving challenge that would support the development of you know, certain mechanisms within the NATO alliance. And so each country calls upon different elements of, uh, you know, different sectors to come in and participate in what's been described as like a shark tank style competition. And in uh, October, 2021, Canada hosted and they, and the focus was cognitive warfare. So there was 132 different startups and organizations and stuff that came in and competed to help NATO develop, actually develop cognitive warfare techniques. And this is all just what's publicly available, right? Just to put a pin in that. And the company that won is a company called uh, Verifix. It's V-E-R-I-P-H-I-X. Um, it's called a belief dynamics platform and they say that they quote we measure beliefs to predict and change behavior so that's not that surprising it's a behavior analytics um, program the people who run it are really interesting the main the main guy john uh Fuiz, is worth looking up, I'm not going to say much about him, but he just has this like outrageously interesting life story. Um, definitely has had his hand in all kinds of bizarre spaces. And then there's another guy, he's the COO named Adam Hash. He's like a retired Navy officer, um, does global security for Facebook and works for the defense. Facebook and <clears throat> 
And you, what, sorry, what could you spell out that it, what was it called? Verifix? Verifex. It's V-E-R-I-P-H-I-X. Got it. Thank you. Dot com. And, uh, and so what they've done is they've said, like, we're the next, um, we're, we're at the cutting edge of, you know, this kind of behavioral analytics, um, basically producing these tools out of behavioral analytics, whereas in the past, maybe you had um, simply, um, you know, mapping disinformation and you had this psychographic segmentation we talked about the last time I was here, um, confirmation bias, like uh, targeting people based on confirmation bias is a really big part of cognitive warfare as well. But all of these, all these things do, Verifex claims, is basically map like the noisy surface level behaviors of people on social media. What we've developed is this much, much more comprehensive um, tool that maps the belief system behind that behavior, not just the surface level stuff. And so you can see on their website, if you scroll down, they have these kind of interesting um, examples of their tool being used. There's an honesty index that... Uh, maps, it measures trust in uh, different areas. You might have to go up to uh, and click on belief three index, if you can see that. So belief three is the name of their tool. And if you scroll down, you'll see that they have these different indexes where they map the population. And one is an honesty index. Here we go. So they're mapping um, trust in the US government and law enforcement. They're mapping trust in social media, which I think is really interesting. Um, people's trust in social media itself. They're mapping the healthcare system and they're mapping education. And if you go down weekly, so they, so they do this weekly, they produce like a weather report, but it's like a social weather report. It literally says something like due to this and due to that, like trust in government is low and trust in this is low. So expect sporadic social movements hitting the streets, spring and summer, you know, it, it almost it's, it's like, it's an emotional weather report. Exactly. It's like cloudy with a chance of uprisings, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, I hate to jump in. I'm just looking at this John, 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 uh, Fuch, I don't know. And I've got this headline. It looks like he was tied up in Theranos. Or, or fought Theranos on IP challenges or something. Anybody tied to any part of the Theranos story is interesting. So maybe that's something to dig into further. Kristen, you sound like this is a familiar fact to you. Yeah, it is. But he's he got caught up in so many different things. He was apparently the source for, for a Seymour Hirsch article 
back during the Iraqi war no um, that, that blew the lid on the CIA providing arms to the Iraqi army. I mean, he's just like, he's been in so many different places doing so many different things, definitely very connected with the pharmaceutical world, uh, developed like easy to swallow, better tasting medicine. <laughs> like it's, it's just one of these stories where you're like, whoa, where'd this guy come from? And, and yeah, yeah. Kind of a typical profile of someone who's like bound, speaks multiple languages, you know, this sort of thing. So this I just is, want to, uh, yeah. real quick, I just want to point this out on this page. That's like the front page here, uh, of Verifix. Um, you know, just look at the topics, Yeah, <clears throat> the topics right in the middle. You know, these are these are the exact topics that you would expect for there to be, you know, an information war, cognitive war over, you know, GMOs, climate change, functional medicine, you know, virtuous and healthy animal welfare, spiritual, right? Yeah. Like that this this really has a lot of uncomfortable potential. Yeah, it's, it's clear that they're aimed at things where where aimed at those things that seem like um, that seem necessary for producing an uh, a an inexpensive to run open air prison. Right. Ming To says, I'm highly disturbed. <laughs> That's probably an appropriate reaction. Well, it shouldn't make us feel comfortable. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting, and all the different articles and papers uh, that have been written that I've read, anyways, by these folks that are funded by NATO, are are oddly nebulous when it comes to who the target actually is. So a lot of the time, it's you know, it's framed as in traditional warfare, like our enemies are doing this to us. We know their enemies are doing this to us. We have to develop even stronger capabilities in this area to protect NATO, the NATO alliance and et cetera, et cetera. But then also very odd statements are made like anyone can be a target. Any, any individual can be weaponized. Um, a pretty famous quote from this declusal guy is like this, the difference between information, previous warfares is that, that this is considered participatory propaganda. So because you will pre predictably engage with information in certain ways, you're actually participating in the mechanism itself. Right. And this is, um, this is how I think that uh, the DMED story got covered up. Um, is that while it was that I was in a deep research hole trying to sort it all out, and I had started to you know release the information showing that um, that the rinse numbers were wrong, uh, unbeknownst to me, there were um, there were people like you know tweeting out or putting out on Instagram. I'm not even on Instagram. Um, you know you can't police all the different channels that information might be shared in, um, <clears throat> but you know uh, in, information that would basically make the the true story that i was trying to present that might cause that might spur an investigation into the contractors who handled the data right uh meanwhile you know uh, there were there were you know a million views at a time on the you know uh, posts on instagram or retweets and some of these were coming directly from um military 
POG groups, propaganda warfare operations groups. So it was the military running a you know cognitive warfare campaign against the information that I was trying to get out. You know, and and to to recognize that, to to come to grips with the fact that you know little old me, you know, could be um, you know effectively targeted um, um, economically, right? Like it, it, previously in prior eras, uh, somebody like me who does who is not famous. Right, who does not have some tremendous reach, uh, you know, uh, television program that that would have, you know, broad viewership, you know, like we 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 get a little over a thousand views per video, I think, on average or something like that. But <clears throat> to it, previously, it would have been economically difficult to target me. Now, apparently, it is not economically difficult if what they have is all of this, you know, set up like you know, a group of people who can all push out the same message at the same time and have that repetition so that it sinks into people's heads as truth before it is that it's, it's properly analyzed and deconstructed, then that's difficult to, to combat against. Right. So um, what people, I mean, it's going to take either people finding a reason or a way to break themselves of the information channels from online media or to themselves learn to hesitate with information acceptance. And that, that's what I would encourage people to do already is hesitate longer than usual. And I've been, it's been interesting. I, I've been blasted for saying this a couple of times recently. I said, I said uh, with, with Project Veritas, I said, we need to slow down with this story, right? We need to slow down and understand this as well as possible. And I'm not saying any one person is wrong here. I'm just saying that this is this is a complex story and to accept that it face value um, too quickly, uh, you know, very possibly ossifies our cognitive ability to then re, you know, to, to reevaluate and re-understand what just happened. Um, I want to jump in and just explain briefly how I know about this in the first place. Matthew, this will be of particular interest to you, perhaps. I'm going to read this passage very short from uh, trust is the target is the heading <clears throat> as the example of COVID-19 shows the massive amount of texts on the subject including deliberately biased text example is the Lancet study on chloroquine created an information and knowledge overload which in turn generates both loss of credibility and a need for closure Therefore, the ability for humans to question normally any data slash information presented is hampered with a tendency to fall back on biases to the detriment of unfettered decision making. It applies to trust among individuals as well as groups, political alliances and societies. So I read that like a year and a half ago, and I interpreted it at the time as evidence that and, and look, NATO does have a disclosure at the beginning that this doesn't necessarily represent their views. To me, it showed that NATO was well aware that there was something to hydroxychloroquine and an intentional moving on from the topic. But I thought that was interesting. They used that specific example. Do, do you have that in an electronic document, Liam? Oh, yeah. It's publicly I, available. Yeah. I custom oh, printed this one. Uh, send me the link to that later. I did not realize that there was discussion of hydroxychloroquine in there. I would love to take a look at that um, as I, you know, I, I've got so much information on what happened with that. 
but it yeah. would be great to include that because it just any admission that hydroxychloroquine was part of that, I think will help open people's eyes. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Kristen, am I misrepresenting what it said there? I don't want to, I don't no, want to no. take something. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And what NATO has done as far as articulating cognitive warfare is it's a pretty short list of uh, tactics or interests um, or methods. And one, and some of this is covered in the piece I already wrote on my Substack, but one is definitely targeting confirmation bias. And this has a lot to do with censorship because we kind of have one of two options. We're herded around pretty easily. Crawford, you wrote about this in your latest piece. Um, the people that just kind of like will so easily go with this or that or move around predictably. Um, and in the case of censorship, either either you believed that that was good for some reason and information can be harmful or you fled and you sought a censorship-free space and you immediately trusted that everything in that space was true. Mm -hmm. And that was so completely weaponized against people in these uh, truth-seeking spaces. And all of these terms were developed to uh, further invite trust that wasn't earned, like the most censored man in America, the most censored doctor, you know, um, and yeah, so yeah, so people get herded around based on confirmation bias really easy. Another um, listed element of cognitive warfare is is uh, taking advantage of people's recency bias. And the recency bias is you are uh, pr predictably only going to pay attention to the most recent information when you go online and you're not going to go back in time to get a larger context with regards to the medium, the source, the individual, none of it. Like people constantly just get these tiny clips and they're like, I like that. That is what I've been trying to tell my friends. I'm going to just pass that along, but they have no context and that's understood. And that's also targeted that people, and that's where memory holding stuff comes from. That's why things can be memory hold is because people forget and don't care and don't go back and look again. They don't look in the past. Um, another kind of interesting element that is one of the main focuses of cognitive warfare as a tactic, and this is the one that really stood out to me that I wanted to explore further with you today, is the description of strategically leaking true information. So instead of like in the uh, Whiting Institute Innovation Hub paper that you brought up earlier that was in NATO review, there's a section called fake information not required or something like that. And they go on to say, you don't even need false information because a strategically leaked document from a public official or a government official can undermine the stability and in, in an entire nation if it's done right. And then they go on to describe 
that actually leaking information over a period of time is even more beneficial because it isn't necessarily the, the one-off. Like if you take the example of the leaked Supreme Court decision, mm. right? That was, I've been reviewing the leaks over the last three years. If you take that example, that's a one-off that definitely did incite and foment some disturbances in the country. But if you look at the pattern of leaks in our country over the last three years, you do see a pattern of slowly letting the information out. And in their own articulation of cognitive warfare, it doesn't have to be untrue information. It's actually just the way in which you leak it that leads to a manipulated population with regards to a particular system itself. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this. Um, I, I've noticed several examples of that. And here's one uh, is the uh, you know, U.S. admitting that they, um, you know, uh, used uh, like that the CIA used USAID to sterilize people in Peru. Right. That's something that is that is admitted. That's publicly admitted by our government that it did this thing, this hor this horrific thing. That Americans, if if you just introduce that out of thin air, Americans would just be so horrified over it. But if instead you draw the process out for years, and then and and you know you, you get pieces of information. Oh, you know, well the CIA worked with USAID. Okay, well people go okay, and in their minds maybe they're even like looking for justifications for that, right? Or or well, but it's it, it may not be so bad. Okay, sure they're collecting intelligence while they're there. Right. Like all the things that a person might do one way or another, though, you're normalizing, you know, uh, you're giving people a chance to excuse away something. And then suddenly there, there's a bomb slipped in there. Oh, forcibly sterilized hundreds of thousands of people. Right. Whereas if that piece of information had been the very first, it would have been processed in a very different way. Instead, it seems almost banal. Or it does seem banal, maybe even worse than banal, right? Like it, 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 it evaporates like vapor, perhaps, in people's cognitive processes. And even worse, if faced with that information, will people then reflexively defend it? Mm. Because they would defend something that they didn't internally mount a response to initially, and to me, I find I find that part really horrific, because now you're talking about not even just um, not even just distracting people from understanding what the truth is, that may actually result in manipulating people to become monsters on your behalf. Well, it's desensitizing people. I mean, I think that's part of the effect of the slow leak of true information. So one experience I've had over the last three years, especially, is what feels like a yeah. kind of continually overplaying of a hand, like pushing the limit yeah. um, with regards to like what whomever will come out and admit is true or leak or whatever without any action being taken in response. So there's this pattern of like egregious things being admitted 
that somehow aren't actionable. And on the one hand, you could say, well, that's because like our system, our law, legal system, whatever, isn't responding and is corrupt. But there is something to this um, saying horrific things and it getting lost in the, the confusion that already exists in the collective cognitive space. And I think the trust with social media question is pretty interesting because on the one hand, if you think about Elon Musk and you think about the Twitter files leak or whatever you want to call that, um, you have on the one hand kind of immediate trust reformed with Twitter from one demographic and immediately you have trust lost by the other. That's how easy it is to actually move huge chunks of the population toward or away from something they trust. And that comment has no bearing on whether or not I think one should trust Twitter. I'm just pointing out the markers of how people move in relationship to those things. Yeah, yeah. So the other interesting kind of pattern that I noticed over the last three years was a uh, the saturation of whistleblowers. Um, and whistleblowers have always been uh, a compelling, you know, kind of people who come out, who put their livelihoods on the line in any capacity to do the right thing, uh, I consider heroes. And I've, I've um, spent a lot of my life kind of reading the different resistance stories and really interested in, moved by those kinds of people. Um, and because of that, have some sense for maybe the more traditional circumstances where these things occur. And I, I noticed, I'm not going to uh, name names, but I'll give two examples of people who are very low profile um, individuals who came out publicly in the last year or two claiming to be whistleblowers. And, and one, the word is often actually misused. Um, so there's a lot of whistleblower, whistleblower, leak, 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 when it's actually not the accurate, accurate term or word to use. But in the case of these two individuals, it was really clear that they were not actually whistleblowers uh, in the sense that one woman, she claimed she had, she used to work for Pfizer and biotech, blah, blah, blah. She claimed she had patents for a variety of different things. And she kind of worked the right wing um, shock and awe circuit, like um, Stu Peters, you know, Mike Lindell and, you know, Steel Truth and this kind of stuff. That's how she got her message out. And her message initially was she had uh, acquired, you know, proof of these patents that whatever was hot at the time was in the vaccine. So if it was, you know, uh, self-assembling nanoparticles, hydrogel, DARPA hydrogel, um, little uh, hydras, um, she went as far, I think even currently on her website right now, you can sign up and give your information to get like 
firsthand access to a patent she claims she has in her possession that proves that there's snake venom in the vaccine. So her story changed so many times, there's just no possible way that, in my opinion, that this could be accurate, but she but she continued to produce the, the clickbait. Um, so that was one example. And another was this guy who also claimed to work for a pharmaceutical company and he was blowing the whistle also on Pfizer. It's always Pfizer, which is right. interesting too. That is as, interesting. As a pattern. And he, he said that he worked in information technology and security, I think for Moderna or Merck, I don't remember. And he therefore would never leak a document that wasn't supposed to be leaked. It wasn't a leak. It was a document he acquired and it was all very legal. He, he kept reiterating and it proved it was a contract between a certain country in the world and Pfizer that, you know, revealed there was an agreement. If people die, the country's liable, whatever, whatever was in it, I don't remember. And he went on to kind of like lead his followers with crumbs like, oh, soon, soon, like breaking, we're going to have a contract from a European country and this sort of thing. And, um, and, but then his, his social media accounts where one would have to follow him in order to get this information were the, the, they were packaged, the posts were packaged in this propagandized way where the hashtag was Pfizer leak. It was Pfizer leak, Pfizer leak, Pfizer leak. And that's the thing that went viral. So on the one hand, he was saying like, this isn't a leak, but on the other hand, he was leveraging that term word and hashtag in order to get attention brought to these contracts, which I have no idea if they're real or not, but probably aren't real. So just looking at this pattern of leaks and whistleblowers already, you know, months ago, I'm thinking, what is really going on here? So then I started digging in the cognitive warfare space for evidence of false whistleblowers also being a tactic. And what I found, in fact, if you Google cognitive warfare, probably two thirds of what comes up has to do with China. China's right. cognitive warfare, you know, abilities. And one of the <clears throat> one of the instances where China is claimed to have been responsible for a cognitive warfare attack has to do with Taiwan. And I think it was in 2020, I think it was actually really pretty early on that this individual who I believe remained anonymous but claimed to be a whistleblower who worked for the Taiwanese National Security Bureau, which is Taiwan's intelligence agency, basically uh, leaked a document that was a list of a lot. I don't remember 160 maybe names of, you know, top tier military officials, politicians, uh, diplomats and journalists with, also personal information, including their telephone numbers. And it the list was supposedly revealing that these people had been or were currently being monitored by the Taiwanese National Security Bureau. And so I had the dates from 
the beginning to the end of this monitoring period. And so uh, Tsai is the name of the uh, president of Taiwan, I believe, uh, you know, came out and made a statement, oh, this is an attack from a foreign adversary, all this kind of stuff. And it was interesting because a couple different bureaucrats wound up commenting on the situation. It, it made headlines in Taiwan. It went all over social media. There was apparently these like fake bot accounts that were created dozens within short periods of time to push it out this list. Um, and then eventually a couple politicians and bureaucrats came out and said like, well, actually part of it is some element of what's in that document is true. And so that seen as that seems to be the uh, most often the example that's used and referenced for a cognitive warfare attack. Um, and it includes, in fact, there's an article on the Lawfare blog. Lawfare is the, um, it's, the Lawfare blog is a collaboration between the Lawfare Institute and the Brookings Institute. You can look it up. And there's an article on there called Manufactured Whistleblowing Data Leaks as Subversion. Something, um, <clears throat> there's something about whistleblowers that has bothered me over the last few years. I'm going to insert this into the conversation at this point, and I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your take on it. And uh, and forgive me, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rearrange my screen here for a moment and share the Wikipedia list of whistleblowers. And while I'm doing that, um, I'm going to tell people or remind people, depending on how much you may know about this, in late 2012, President Obama um, altered the Whistleblower Act. And I don't know how many people know that or know how it was altered. One thing that disturbs me is almost everybody I've ever heard talk about it has missed what I think is the primary point, right? And, and in order to explain this point, I'm going to point out, you know, you can go and look at, at this, you know, whistleblowers, you know, we're starting in like 2000, you know, and especially like, you know, post 9-11, you have all kinds of whistleblowers every year. I would say it looks like an average of maybe 10 a year. As I'm scrolling down, let me know if that if that estimate seems reasonable. Lots in 2005, 2006, 2000, um, 2007, and uh, and then suddenly we get to 2012. And I just want to point out, you know, we've we've got, you know, three in 2013, uh, one two one two or three in 2014, one in 2015, a couple in 2016. Right. Something happened there. Right. The number of people who were blowing whistles dropped off a cliff. Now, it's come back again. Right. The number of people blowing the whistle as of pandemic era has suddenly shot back up to something that looked more like prior norms or at least closer to it. And and I think that it's interesting to imagine why, why, what happened here. And you have to actually like look into the text of the Whistleblower Act in order to understand what it actually did. People think, oh, well, uh, whatever happened, that was to protect whistleblowers, right? And the answer is no, it did the exact opposite. What it did do is, is it, it, it extended protections 
for people who would probably never have access to important information. Hmm. But for the several million Americans who work for either the government or for corporations that do lots of business with it, that do important business with the government, anything that would involve classified information at all, for them, it makes it much harder to blow the whistle. In fact, in fact, those people can be held accountable as if they were members of the military giving up state secrets. Literally, those people could be pulled out of their homes, arrested, thrown into prison, and the government would never even have to tell the American public that it happened. There could be right. no documentation that it took place. That is what the Whistleblower Act actually did and that most people don't understand. This is one reason why we should be skeptical about every whistleblower situation during the pandemic. And that's not to say that I don't believe any of them. But for instance, you know, so far what I've heard from Andrew Huff, for instance, and I'll just I'll just say this out loud, having interacted with him, um, I found him of very low credibility. And when I, you know, when I thought through like, what, what is he blowing the whistle on? Right? Like almost nobody, when I've asked people over and over, like, okay, what's his whistleblower story? Like the, there's this one like sort of salacious thing. Peter Daszak told me he worked for the CIA. Oh, well, big whoop. I mean, how many people have I met who told me they worked for the CIA? You know, it's it's like... <laughs> uh, and and at that level, at the level of work that Dashik and, and EcoHealth Alliance were doing on behalf of the government, it would be almost odd that he wouldn't have at some point done work with the intelligence community. It's right. the wrong question, you know? Oh. Pardon. Right. But, uh, especially, <laughs> especially given that, um, you know, he came from the military, mm. right? Um, he had, uh, you know, he came from the military. He, um, well, I, I'll, I'll actually just stop there. Um, you know, when you imagine that, that the new whistleblower rules make it much harder for him and that so far nothing has been actionable, right? He's just sort of being paraded around and he goes on. Um, you know, I saw him on, on Dell Big Tree and, and I don't, you know, like you could make a drinking game out of, you know, people should read my book and, and, <laughs> and such statements like that. But, but the, you know, it's a good example of, you know, is there anything actionable here? Right? Like what, what is the purpose of this? It feels like something where there's a distraction and by putting the focus on Peter Dashik, and I'm not saying Peter Dashik's not a bad guy. I'm saying that um, by putting the focus on him, it may release potential focus on a lot of other people. Well, and and maybe, Kristen, I wanted to ask you, th so this week, the United States Department of Energy has essentially affirmed the lab leak narrative. Um, I think they qualify it with some like low to moderate degree of confidence, you know, whatever the intelligence they're confirming is. But we have the United States government themselves now coming and saying, okay, yeah, boom. But again, it's at a time where what what is the intended, like what is the possible result here? Well, for example, uh, Robert Barnes, who I admire and very much uh, respect and support the work of and think is a good guy. Um, his response is, well, now we can probably go and we can, we can pursue legal action against Anthony Fauci. 
we can possibly look at legal action against various entities of the Chinese government. And I'm thinking none of this will help. It, like those proposed actions don't in any way address the, un like they're probably, probably wrong. They're probably not actually going to be the most productive. Well, I'll, I'll throw this out. You know, like I, I haven't, I, I haven't exactly followed you, you followed what Robert Barnes has said and thought on Project Veritas much more closely than I have. Um, uh, you know, he, he's a civil rights attorney, yes. right? And, and with civil rights attorneys, um, some actions may be about a court case themselves and some may be about symbolism. Oh, sure. And, and also setting precedent. So allow me to clarify. I still, I support those actions, but in terms of if he, I, I'm, I'm operating on, he is a unequivocally good actor, but the choice of the department of energy and this whistleblower narrative and the timing of all of this, and, and just to backtrack back to uh, one of the things that got me really paying attention was when I understood that there were social media uh, platform policies that were very strangely worded. For example, there was a day, I remember the day well, where Facebook decided you now could talk about the potential of a lab leak. You previously were not allowed at all. Then it became, now you can talk about this. And it was so transparently, it, it was like narrative not allowed. Now narrative is, is on schedule. You know what I mean? Like, it's all very so in terms of timing the thing and trying to, like, uh, aim the narrative and time the narrative. It's, it, it's it feels that way to me. And and I could see Andrew Huff and what he's doing, supporting that action that, you know, timing a narrative, aiming sort of like you say, not away from the bad guys, but at completely the wrong minutia or the the minutia that will give us, as you say, the least actionable um information like that that we can't do much with it you know what i mean and it, and it just affirms what a lot of people already kind of understand and have moved on from yeah i mean so to return to the white noise question too in east palestine and project veritas um i appreciate very much this encouraging people to be to to be hesitant with just forming an opinion about what's going on. So I have found that following very different markers to get a sense for what's going on than the information that's taking place uh, back and forth on any given thing helps me to better, uh, I think, characterize it, even if I can't in the end come out and say, I think this is the reality of it. I can kind of get to know what it is through other elements of the experience. And I find that like a whole different toolbox than just intelligence is needed in terms of, of thinking. For example, I pay attention to parallels and I think that there are indications of something whenever I see them. So an example of a parallel is that people noticed, a lot of people noticed was the COVID pandemic only then to be followed by the uh, fear of a cyber pandemic. Yeah. Another parallel is isolation, isolation of people in their homes, isolation of the virus. 
Another parallel is dark winter, the obsession with dark winter, and then the use of terms like rolling blackouts during the snowstorm yeah. and power grid failures down in Texas. That's also been carried over into other places. The use of the term six weeks to flatten the curve at the beginning of the lockdowns then used again by European parliamentarians with regards to energy, the energy crisis. Um, and yeah, that, that was absurd. I, I remember that. That was crazy when they I used know. the flatten the curve thing yeah. in, in context. And also uh, also tying in the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict that, because the energy crisis isn't just weather, it's also what you know the geopolitical ramifications of, of that conflict. Right. Um, another one is another one is just the fear of the fear of the virus and then the fear of shedding only in the sense that actually the experience that in any given individual is having in either of those two camps is literally exactly the same. Uh, and now you have a third, oh. a third parallel in East Palestine, which is people are afraid of an unseen particle harming them and potentially killing them. So those kinds of patterns and parallels are more interesting to me than um, trying to figure out whether or not I can like really actually figure out what's going on but they tend to indicate and the parallel here is what we're talking about with the leaks and i do believe my opinion is that a lot of this stuff is managed and curated and it is a form of cognitive warfare and that has been part of the reason why for the last three years most people pretty much everyone across the board has had the experience that like a cataclysmic shift in reality occurred. Yeah. Some, something very fundamental about our experience of being a human being in the world in relationship to what's around us shifted fundamentally. And people that pushed the pandemic measures on their neighbors and people who didn't all had that experience. And to me, that's an indication that actually these tactics were launched and have been launched on the population, I believe. And I think that's why symptoms of that are people having the experience of things being scripted, things being staged, the term clown world, um, all the world's a stage, this feeling like you're being laughed at by something, all of those kind of characterize uh, what feels like a hyper-managed, curated information space in order to kind of mess with our heads. And the lab leak is just, it's another leak, isn't it? Couldn't yeah. you say that's parallel to all these other leaks, the Fauci files, the Twitter files? Yeah, it, 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 what you just said about distortion of reality, this is something that... Um, I came at it from a different angle early on during the pandemic. Um, I spent some time trying to get messaging out. I did this both under my own name and through anonymous accounts when I still used to spend time um, doing that. Um, th there's something that goes back to the Ash Conformity experiment. And it's frustrated me that I haven't, I've seen people get this wrong over and over again, or, or at least miss the point. 
in the Ash Conformity experiments, um, the the researcher Ash he he went back and he surveyed all the people, right? At, it, it wasn't just that they had the experiment and then they had the results. He had people fill out a survey, like why did you follow the crowd? If you followed the crowd, right? Why did you say that this wrong answer was right? And and of course, like most people gave like you know answers like you know they wanted to fit in. They um, they some people feared. Um, but it feared uh, retribution by the crowd, right? Or some people just wanted to be part of the crowd. But there was a proportion of the people who responded who said that wasn't the wrong answer. Like I perceived that as the right answer, right? They literally had a distortion of perception, right? So we, we've known about this for over 70 years, right? We've known that these effects take place as it is that the crowd responds to information, our own view of that information becomes distorted reality. And one thing that really bothered me was as I was writing articles about this and putting articles about it and that, and, and to me, that was, was part of the point that I was trying to help people reach. One thing that I noticed was suddenly somebody else publishes an article about Ash conformity and their article goes viral and covers up this like and, and completely you know um covers up this whole discussion of distortion of reality and then suddenly the work that i had done the articles that i had put out were no longer you know the ones that people would point to and that, that was very interesting to me to watch that happen and that involved actually pushing pushing out that article that became more viral involved um you know multiple people in the medical freedom movement uh, you know, that you would think of as the 800 pound gorillas, um, you know, that, that would, that should be leading people to understand the situation better. So I, I'm going to encourage people to, to, you know, go back and, and think through that. Somebody just said memetics. Yeah. Um, yeah. People, people do look to the crowd, just like a flock of birds or uh, a school of fish. We can't think through everything in real time. We just can't. This is why we have system one, system two, you know, operating in our brains. Sometimes we have to go on instinct and reaction, and then we can have our meditation time where we sit and rewire ourselves and think deeply about things and 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 use our best judgment. Um, well, I, 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 in, in, in order in order to go day to day, people have to look around and see what the crowd is doing. Well, and and you're making me think now. I'm instantly fascinated by what you said about like people after the fact defended and doubled down on, no, I, what do you mean? That was the correct answer. And I'm imagining there are psychological, like there, there are neurobiological systems that can be like, I don't think uh, we can fully grasp the ways in which perception itself can be altered. Not just you've convinced yourself that it's good or right to have picked the wrong answer, but that if you've got lines, which I believe the Ash Conformity experiments, that's what they were, right? It was, it was uh, at least the, the part I'm familiar with is there were a bunch of lines, different heights, and then people had to say, this is the longest line or whatever. I've had experiences where I'll be looking at, for example, um, like my bed sheet, and it'll have either pattern A or no pattern at all. And then for some reason, uh, even just for fun, uh, like to, to experiment, uh, just with myself, I'll imagine, or I'll try to perceive pattern B. And then I'll, I'll, to an extent, I will, I see the, 
I see pattern B. Um, not in the same way that pattern A or lack of pattern altogether is visible. It's a separate, it feels like an additional layer over reality. And maybe there's something to do with uh, synesthesia there. I don't know. But my point is, that's a thing. I, I don't know what it is. I'm not the guy to, to be able to explain it properly. But this is making me think like there is something to, um, at a certain point, you do change or you do uh, have the ability to aim people's actual perception of not just information, but physical reality too, in these subtle ways that have legitimate, meaningful uh, consequences. Uh, does that sound crazy? No, oddly, I, I do sort of meditative exercises like that myself. Right? Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm always curious as to how common something like that might be. Um, well, there you go. And we haven't talked about this before. This is legitimately the first time Matthew and I are, are you know, each sharing this. So that's cool. That's actually quite a relief to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I was involved in an organization uh, over the last 10 years, less than the last few, that did uh, research into screens and how, and basically just devices and how they affect child development in particular as a coming from the perspective of a teacher and seeing trends in classrooms um, and you know different kinds of challenges, learning challenges, sensory challenges, stuff like that, and exploring the relationship between development in all its various forms and the uh, birth of technology being so present in, in people's lives and homes. And um, one of the interesting things that I learned was that the generation under me basically is the first generation to not necessarily make such a clear distinction between virtual and non-virtual experience. So where for me, I uh, computers and the dot-com boom happened when I was young and I watched that come into our world, the generation under me has kind of always had that as part of their world. And so listening to you, you know, youth, teens or people in their 20s talk about it actually as if it's two experiences coming together into one was a pretty interesting um, idea that's not so accessible for me. And I don't know, uh, I don't know how it is shaping perception and reality and these different elements of our thinking. But I would also just say like with the ash experiment situation and this 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 phenomenon of people not uh, having a hard time having felt like they've been had, you know, that that you've mentioned, Matthew, in the past. Like people like don't like to admit that they've been had. Um, and that really is strongly at work all over the place, is just not really being comfortable admitting that they didn't know or they got something wrong and the extent to which people will go basically just to not have to do, to do that. And it, it brings up for me the importance of also people's uh, hygienic feelings in relationship to their, their thoughts. So there's like the necessity for 
clear, competent, I would go as far as to say like creative capacities and thinking, objective, qualitative, but then also that people understand uh, the social sphere, they have a relationship with themselves and with the earth and with future and everything enough that comes out of a care, a cultivated care. Um, so it isn't because the, the intellectual information space is so cold and it's so easily actually um, has meaning, meaningfulness like leached out of it actually. And so if you, I think if you really are, are healthy in your emotional life too, in relationship to your thinking, then it's easier to say like, I didn't get that right. You know, I, I can reflect on my actions and learn from them or whatever it might be, you know? So this makes me go back to a number of events. And, and I wonder how much of this is testing uh, and how much of this, hmm. uh, okay, so pe pe what you just said, people don't like to think they've been had. Um, Mark Twain had a, a good quote about that. I can't remember exactly how it is, but um, that, you know, it's hard to convince people that they've been fooled. Um, it, there have been several events. Maybe I'll go in backward order. Woody Harrelson on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Project Veritas, and I, I'm still deciphering that one. There's so much there, but I'm still deciphering it. Um, a little bit further back, you've got the slap with. Uh, uh, oh, Will Will uh, Smith. Will and, Smith. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, uh, remember but, that. <laughs> and uh, you know, there, a few other examples. Oh, and, and you know, I'm going to throw Ed Dowden here. We got, you know, I wrote an article in which I explained that um, Ed Dowd's appearance on Bannon's War Room involved, you know, a, a, a very clear market signal that I could point to where the value of options was pumped up like 330% ahead of people hearing this, you know, see, seeing the big short was what that episode was called and hearing that message. And then a bunch of people went out and bought options at very expensive prices and then you know, a few days later, the market uh, was deflated. So the option prices went back to normal. Yeah, I, I got right? my tax papers from those transactions uh, in the mail yesterday. <laughs> and, 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 and here's what I'm going to say about this. All four of those examples, you know, I had opinions um, that people argued with about them. Where it was like, oh, this is like overboard conspiracy theory or, you know, blah, 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 you know. Um, but, but I felt like there was something... Like I, I could detect elements of each of these situations that didn't feel quite right. And now I think I can I can better you know put a finger on this, which is that all four of those situations may have involved unwitting participants who didn't really know what role they were playing in an otherwise arranged event. And that because of that, this becomes even further confusing to people and their senses, and they have a very hard time stepping back from that. For instance, suppose Will Smith was paid a certain amount of money and told, you know, you will be given a signal to go slap Chris Rock. And he may, he may not even know what that's about. And he, 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 he hears Chris Rock's joke, and you see him in the audience. He's laughing. 
right? And then suddenly a minute later, he's charging on stage all angry and slaps him. Um, you know, with Project Veritas, um, you know, uh, I, I think uh, most of us that I've talked to have agreed uh, it does not look like uh, Tristan Walker is acting, right? I mean, it, it's goofy, but it doesn't look like he's acting. And and I don't think O'Keefe is acting. I don't think that O'Keefe is part of anything like, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think he's part of a nefarious plot in there. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, Woody Harrelson, right? I think I think that what Woody Harrelson said on Saturday Night Live is his opinion. I don't think that that's an act. However, each of these events may then be framed and arranged in ways to lead people to the wrong important part of the story. Right. And, and this, this is where, um, this is where cognitive warfare comes in, right? If you can, if you can shift people's attention from a piece that's more important to less important about the event, then you can take a true story and you can take people who may even be attempting to do something heroic, like Ed Dowd, right? I, I really do believe that he's, that he has a good heart. And that he that he and, and that he's mostly doing good work, and that he had no idea that his work might be used to fleece people. Yeah, that that's my gut instinct. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's just a maybe he's just a really great acting, you know, mafia criminal. I doubt it. Um, but this this is a really interesting twist on the way propaganda takes place, and I think people need to stop and think about it. Um, and maybe even look for the elements that are in common in a lot of these situations. Um, it, you know, it also tells us, you know, to the degree that you want easy trust, you have to relocalize. You have to deal with people in person. I have one uh, one comment on Project Veritas. I wanted to share, which is uh, one of the markers that all pay attention to to try to understand what's going on is this this trust so does it look like there's immediate unearned trust taking place what is the trust that people are giving to something based on you know and i i think that i have a different take on the Tristan Walker thing than you do, Matthew. But that aside, uh, seeing, having, having hesitated and stepped back and watched what's unfolded, these are some interesting parts of the story. He gets ejected or that's the story that spreads, that he gets like kicked out, right, of, the, of Project Veritas. And immediately, O'Keefe gets kicked out of Project Veritas. Yeah, that's the story that circulated, and immediately you have this like swell of people just kind of doing this whole cult of personality thing around him. Immediately, to the extent that um, right-wing influencers were engaging in the same kind of cancel culture behavior. 
that they would traditionally actually say they had a problem with. Uh, for example, like I'm demanding my money back. Who's with me? You know, so this like kind of mob rule attack on the board took place where it, it became popular and was trending to like go after the board and demand your money back and memes memes formed like i stand with james o'keefe this video went around with all these whistleblowers saying they stand with james o'keefe so and and that may all very well be good and fine but just to point out that it creates a really pretty thick fabric of trust around this individual and so what will be interesting to see is what he then goes on to do with that. Right. I think that's the thing that will tell us what actually happened. That's one thing. Also the whole Tristan Walker thing, it almost felt like if we give if if we allow people's attention to stay on that too long, something extra super weird might happen. So just noting <laughs> Liam your face. Just noting the redirection of attention that occurred from the Trist Tristan Walker to the James O'Keefe getting targeted and pushed out of the board is also notable. And then the third thing is Simone Gold using that situation as a parallel to her own, which she did do publicly. I saw that. I saw that. I've actually got that queued up as part of an article. I keep going. Yeah. A number of times I, uh, it was, it was shared with me. People forwarded it to me in telegram and Twitter and other social media spaces over the course of a period of time, a number of times frontline news, America's frontline doctors under Simone gold or her own personal accounts, whoever's running those put out these, look at what they're doing to James O'Keefe. The AFLDS board is doing the same thing to me. So that was something else that I was just paying attention to. And of course, I do have this background on James O'Keefe, and I am not particular, I'm biased because I think Eric Prince and that whole uh, cartel and the fact that they were actually in particular hired to infiltrate uh, the non-GMO grassroots movement in this country by Monsanto to break down. Wait, let's know, slow down for a second. Um, Cause you know, you threw out a name, the audience, um, there may be a lot of people yeah. who don't know what you're, what you're heading down. Um, what Kristen's talking about is that Blackwater, which is um, a, a private security firm. Um, and the, this is the same private security firm that at least um, the information that I have is they were the ones who were hired to um, you know, torture Saudi um, princes, businessmen, and ministers during the MBS power consolidation. Oh, right. Um, so you know, this is this is a group that um, that gets hired for some pretty extreme purposes. They operate kind of like a private military with an intelligence arm. Is that about right? And, well, and Eric Prince is, is that Betsy DeVos's brother? Yeah. And he's one of the founders of Blackwater, yeah. which is now yeah. called like XE. You yeah, know, they've, they've, exactly. They've so, changed the name. That may be cognitive warfare on its own, but sorry. So returning to that, sorry, uh, Kristen, keep going. Well, Blackwater was uh, run by and employed all X 
intelligence from a variety of different countries. And then they trained people in those same, you know, tactics. This whole thing of X intelligence is a whole topic for another time, but that is in and of itself a very gray, muddy area because you can, you can, because you can be actively engaged with an agency, then retire only to then be doing these private contracts. And that's what everybody does. So, you know, when Blackwater formed, there was a couple others, the anonymous hackers, Barrett Brown, people, you know, exposed these private contracting companies that the government would hire to do what's illegal for the government to do. But now it's like, it's crazy how many of these private contracting companies exist across the country and across the world because they don't really have to abide by the same laws. And it's the same as having these Five Eyes countries come in with their intelligence to do things on our soil. Our intelligence isn't you know, supposed to be able to do. So he formed Blackwater, had all these ex-intelligence employees um, contracted, you know, with the CIA and the DOD in Iraq and in the Middle East was, yes, supposedly involved in these like um, CIA black sites and this sort of stuff. And uh, ultimately, his team was accused of the killing of 14 civilians. And he had to testify in front of Congress. I actually happened to know and be friends with uh, a retired colonel who who knows him and claims he was one of the people who kept Eric Prince from going to prison. Um, and after that really bad media situation, they renamed the organization to Axie. And there's a couple different branches in there. And one of them, corporations can hire to uh, mitigate any kind of grassroots response to something you want to do. That story was, was broke originally by Jeremy Scahill in The Nation. And he you know, had got his hands on these contracts between Monsanto and um, XE that exposed Monsanto had hired this, this company to infiltrate um, the anti-GMO movement in the country to keep it from being effective. So that matters to me. I don't think that that's okay. And probably a whole lot more of that kind of stuff is what has been going on that I've been documenting. I can't prove it, but I'm sure these third-party contracting companies have been involved and have been hired to come in and cause uh, chaos in our in our within our good efforts so then eric prince goes on to bring this x mi6 guy for, over from uh england to train uh james o'keefe and a couple other people at the launch of of project veritas so they're trained by these same people and given the funding i know you already went over this quite a bit liam and i appreciate that it at least needs to be said that it's a bias organization yeah. and whether that then is okay with people or not. Cause I've had this conversation and people are like, well, who cares if they're, you know, exposing what Pfizer is doing. And so that's fine. As long as you know that this is a biased organization, they're not there just to like reveal badness as that's it right. exists around. And, and 
and and on that, um, I uh, there's a couple things from my um, report on the funding that even during the live stream I did, I acknowledge I learned more that that sort of evolves my take. Um, the Mercer family, that's a topic for a different day, but the way in which like the accusations of, for example, the Koch brothers having influence uh, or their, their empire. I don't know anything about them. We've talked about them briefly before the way that is done or the, the, the setup that exists is, is through these donor advised funds, the AF, which um, it's not just donors trust, which is the big one. There's a whole bunch of others, including Vanguard charitable, um, the Jewish communal fund, a whole bunch of them. And the whole point is, and this is a legitimate criticism from the so-called left, um, that means we can't know a good chunk of where the money is coming from. And um, those donor-advised funds, like I said, Vanguard Charitable, I, it, it's not then that Vanguard is necessarily funding them, but this is tied to an organization that owns Pfizer and all of these other companies. So it really muddies the water on, oh, it's okay if they're exposing the Pfizer stuff. Okay, but it does sort of feel to me like the same people behind Pfizer are behind Project Veritas at a certain level. So it complicates things. I do just really want to quickly get back to item two of those three that you said, the attention change from the Jordan Tristan Walker situation, because that is the lived experience of rounding the earth. Because it was only after, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's causal, but it was correlated to my video on, uh, it was called Caution is Always Wise, um, and it was about this topic, and I went a direction that was different. Uh, I just focused on an aspect that I thought was interesting, and it was only after that episode that Rounding the Earth was completely removed from YouTube. I, I do believe that that was the the axe strike. Um, I, right. I think that the, that um, I think that that you got near the story that that pharmaceutical companies and, and maybe maybe people don't want to investigate any don't want for any of the connections or the money trails to be investigated right now. All right. It might be too revealing, but, um, and, and I know it would be difficult for me to express all the information that I've heard and why it is that I feel like I know this, but, um, I think that, that, uh, that therapies to treat vaccine injury have been in development for years. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and throw this out in mid uh, 2021, I wrote an article in which I said, look, if vaccine injuries are caused by spike protein, and we do see a lot of similar symptomology, right, between uh, between at least a portion of the vaccine injured and people with COVID, I said, we should be calling that type 2 COVID because the definition of a disease is not the etiology, it's the symptoms, right? And, and so I, I came up with this, you know, type 2 COVID, you know, let, let's call some of the vaccine injuries that, and it might change the way we look at vaccine effectiveness, right? It would change all those calculations at once. Um, and uh, the very next day after I published that article, a scientist calls me and says, uh, Matthew, you know, keep this on the down low. <laughs> but, you know, what do you think when, it, when you hear the word VADES? I said, well, AIDS, obviously. And I had already thought of that acronym, right? And I, and I nearly put it in my article. I nearly said that. But it, 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 the way that it was presented to me it made me think that there was already a conversation amongst a pool of people that that um, that I was kept that that had been going on 
And, and I think that I've been kept out of that conversation, but that this conversation was already going on amongst a pool of people. And that maybe even from before vaccines rolled out, I just had this instinct and this feeling, and I've got little bits of information that seem confirmatory, but that would be hard to explain. Um, but it felt like before the vaccines were rolled out, what was going to happen was known and that people were already pursuing various forms of treatment. And this would tell us about how much was already known, right? Like this can't be made public or else people will rethink too much that they've seen, right? Maybe even both amongst, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies and perhaps even amongst some of the people in the medical freedom movement, because I do believe that there is a lot of money, a lot of money um, that, that people in the medical freedom movement have been using to invest in some of those solutions. So I think that there is a lot to hide right there. I think, Liam, uh, your story right there got way too close to something that scared the crap out of some people. I think that combined with uh, James O'Keefe um, getting to the fact that the Boston Consulting Group was sort of like a, you know, a, an interoperable arm, I guess, you know, working with Pfizer and uh, and getting too close to the remdesivir story. And I think uh, Kristen is correct that the trust used can later be directed, you know, and, and again, this may not even be with James O'Keefe's knowledge, just like I said about all those other situations, you know, maybe he's a bad actor. I'm going to assume he's a good actor for the moment. But one way or another, that directed trust, that's the point, right? Yeah. It doesn't even matter that it's James O'Keefe in a sense, right? His, his actions, his ethics, his morality may not even factor into the way he gets portrayed in some really important situation down the road, right? It's like this certain kind of cash that it, it, it's, it's like an, an emotional capital, that can be used later. And I think that we have to start thinking this way. We have to do this in order to be defensive and we have to use it to help us recognize what it is that we should be investigating. Wow, this has been such a productive discussion today. Um, wow, um, I, 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 uh, the, today and yesterday, I feel like uh, my, my week's discussions have been uh, more um, more clear and and uh, practical this week uh, and deep at the same time, all all very useful. Um, is there anything else that we need to cover today before we wrap things up, Kristen? No, I think it's been a very nice and very complete conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, every time I've talked with you, you've added to things that I was already thinking about um, in in important ways. Uh, and, you know, we're happy to have you back, um, you know, reach out to us whenever it is that, uh, that you're reaching, you know, um, uh, new information or, or new, you know, when, uh, when your research, um, uh, seems like it can plug in and be valuable, uh, on an educational level to our audience and help us better understand things. And, um, and again, this is beyond the maze. This is Kristen's, uh, you know, if you haven't seen the interview with Brian Braze, you should watch that interview. Um, like you, like that is, that is an important story that is bizarrely undertold, right? The, the medical freedom movement should be, you know, um, I'm about to sneeze. So Liam, I'm going to let you take this over. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, it's uh, I, 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 uh, I admit I haven't watched it yet, and that's simply a matter of of lack of time thus far. But it's uh, I'm gonna put it at the top of my priority list now, especially. And Kristen, maybe you and I need to talk about this offline. I've had in my own life something related to this come up that I I talked to Matthew about, and I, I don't want to get into it more now. But but one of these so-called chaos agents, allegedly, um, including someone discussed in the Brian Braze uh, interview, I, I understand, has appeared in my own life in a way I wasn't expecting and in a way that was a very... Uh, there's been some interesting developments up here in Canada, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so I highly recommend getting into the interview. I definitely am going to shortly. And um, my gosh, what else did I want to say? Um, yeah, it's, uh, I like the idea that, um, we should always be comfortable challenging each other's biases as well. For example, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I think Matthew and I both really want James O'Keefe to be the real deal. That's the feeling I'm getting. So our, our bias might be, look, let's see if we can find a way to fit James O'Keefe into this in a way that doesn't make him responsible. Now, maybe, maybe I'm over representing that. Maybe he, uh, I don't know. So I, I, I invite you. It's easier if you're, if you're later, if you're willing to, if you've learned how to kill your heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if not literally, but yeah. Heroes, <laughs> then you don't have to worry about lending somebody trust until they fail, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and Kristen, you're, you are arming us, as Matthew is, is saying, with, like, I've, I've written down so many notes today um, on not just concepts, well, concepts, but also very specific names and organizations and websites to go investigate further. So thank you for your wealth of knowledge. Everybody should go to beyondthemaze.substack.com and uh, subscribe if you haven't. Um, I also highly recommend, let me stop my screen here and start sharing this other fun tab up here because we have also been streaming live over on runningtheearth.locals.com where, um, unfortunately, I can't watch what we're streaming, um, but everyone else can. And um, highly recommend jumping in there. We have tremendous discussions that go on in the chat there. And to be fair, on Rumble as well, we're having fantastic discussions. But roundingtheearth.locals.com is where you can support us, become either, either a free member and just stay in the loop in one concise feed of everything we're doing, or you can sign up as a paid supporter for as little as five bucks a month and um, gain access to our weekly uh, locals exclusive live streams where we talk a lot about stuff in the realm of this topic. So if you found this interesting, then. And, I, I, and, and you know, I, we're already stretching. I, I know that I'm, uh, I'm stretching things out here, but I just, I want to say this because uh, I appreciate these platforms that had that that seemed to be more committed to allowing us to talk right we we have been pushed out of youtube um i love substack and i love locals and uh they 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 feel like they serve a different purpose um one thing that i have noticed with locals is it does act more like a community there aren't nearly as many people there as are reading around in the earth right now right it's like 50 50 times as many people you know we've been there a lot longer um but um, I, I do feel more comfortable right now with Substack as a publishing platform. Um, it, it seems to handle what I'm doing better. But Locals is very multimedia and the community aspect is good. I don't know if these can ever be 
Like, I don't know if one place can ever do everything well. It's, it's sort of an interesting question. Um, but uh, I, I, I appreciate uh, both these platforms in different ways. So I just want to throw that out there. People who just want to read newsletters, Substack, it feels like, um, you know, at least right now, the best place to be. Um, people who are wanting to participate, um, be part of the conversation. I think Locals is a great place for that. Completely agree. Roundingtheearth.substack.com, roundingtheearth.locals.com. And very soon, I'm right now working on a Rounding the Earth uh, website where all this will be even easier to access. So more to come there. Any final thoughts, Kristen? No, I just appreciate you guys so much. I uh, It's easy to talk to you and uh, it's fun and you're intelligent and it makes for a good time. So thanks for having me on and I'll definitely come back again sometime. Thank you, Kristen. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who's watched, no matter where you've been watching. We've been on Locals. We've been on Rumble. We've been on Twitch, believe it or not. We've been on Facebook, believe it or not. Oh, that feels dirty to say. Um, so wherever you've been watching, Rockfin, Odyssey, you've all been wonderful. And I look forward to seeing you guys again uh, tomorrow for our weekly Locals exclusive live stream. I have been Liam Sturgis. Bless you all.